Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Michael Regan. Michael, thanks for being with us. No, my pleasure, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you start it off, tell our listeners who you are and where you're from. Yeah, so I'm Michael Regan. I'm from a a little town up north uh, in Northern California called Petaluma, a town of about 60,000 people. We're uh, we're a little bit over the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, Been in the mortgage business. I'm a loan officer. Been in the mortgage business since about July of 2006. I've got a, a decent team, you know, not a mega team necessarily, but my wife and I uh, run our branch. We have uh, one LO and then, uh, of course, our own dedicated processor and LOA. So we've got a, you know, a group of five or six of us and growing. So that's kind of my little quick, quick hit. Awesome. And what got you into the real estate industry in the beginning? You know, like what, what was that first exposure to real estate? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So actually, my, degree to, my degree's in radio and television. So I was actually an anchor reporter for an NBC affiliate. And uh, mm-hmm. was doing that, came back. My dad kind of got sick, um, came back. And then, uh, then I met my now wife who had been in the business since probably 2001. And then, uh, you know, from there, from 2001, she just said, hey, you know, I'm in the mortgage business. Uh, instead of going out and starting, you know, fresh with a, you know, a new media company, essentially, why don't you just try loans? And so I said, okay, you know, I'll try loans, just try it out kind of thing. And then it took off and right. And I got in, in July of, you know, six. So the market was starting to kind of tank as is, Mm -hmm. but I think it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because I was able to learn the right way, not the wrong way. Right. I never knew an easy market. So I had to develop my business to survive. And so we got through the crash, you know, as a new LO got through the crash and I was working for a big bank at the time. And when it went through the third merger, I said, I'm out. Like, I'm just, I need to make it on my own. I'm going out on my own or I'm not in this business. Because uh, I just couldn't take the kind of structure and stranglehold that you know that a lot of a lot of those companies have. Sure. Um, so I went out on my own, and I, that was in uh, October of '09. So not a great time, but I said at this point I'm making it or I'm not. And I didn't have a database. I didn't have much of anything, but you know, worked my ass off, quite frankly, and you know, built up a really sizable business since then. So that's kind of the backstory. Awesome. 
Yeah, and I, I like the comment that you never had a real easy market. So it's not like you had this illusion of what being an MLO was, and then all of a sudden it was yanked out from under you. You actually were introduced to it in the fire of the the recession, and as things were just falling apart, the whole world was falling apart around you, and you're like, <laughs> "Oh, I'm gonna make this thing work." And you're, <laughs> so yeah. No, 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 it was yeah, it was. You're absolutely right, Jeffrey. I mean, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, look, I, I never knew it easy to begin with, and. You know, and, and one of those things, I guess, is it teaches you not to be not to do it the lazy way. You have to do it something that you have to look at what's high ROI, you know, what's the best use of your time and, you know, what's simply, you know, what's going to work. There was no easy way to make it work, especially at that time where you couldn't give houses away. Right. Absolutely. So through that journey, what was the single most important action that you took on a daily basis that attributed most to your success? Number one, CRM. Um, that was absolutely the number one, because I mean, it's one of those things being, you know, out meeting a lot of people, connecting with a lot of people and past clients, things like that. If you don't have a good system for following up with them, uh, you're kind of just wasting your time. I mean, you're just kind of churning and being transactional instead of relationship based. You know, to me, the CRM was the biggest thing because once I started using the database, and that was probably in March of 10 is when I really got my database and started using it. Uh, it was the single best thing has ever been in my career. I mean, every single year, more and more of my business comes from my database. And so I'm not reliant on any referral partners. Like literally, you think in like 2020, it was over 70%. Last year, it was even 65%, a little over 65%. So it's one of those things I could literally get rid of all my referral sources and still have 65 to 75% of my business. Um, it's really nice knowing that I've got an outside sales force and I'm not paying, you know, I don't have to deal with that actually like me um, and I keep up with them, but I don't have to, like there's no other, you know, kind of political things going on. It's just like they... Love you, trust you. Um, you've done a great job for them, and they become your sales force. And so that's to me, that was the number one thing of having a, a database at CRM uh, to be able to keep up with clients and keep up with you know everything. Essentially, run my business almost automated. Yeah, understood. So since two thousand nine to today, in two thousand twenty two, you've been building and nurturing that database. Mm -hmm. So, what systems do you have in place to nurture your sphere? So it's, it's, it's a mix of old school, new school, right? So the database has, obviously you do some holiday emails, that kind of stuff, but that's not really what it's relying on. Yes, I do some email blasts uh, to clients, but I do a, a mix of handwritten, like handwritten cards. So I'll do handwritten birthday cards. Um, I do, we do loan anniversaries for our clients every single year. And those are handwritten. Those are actually done. I mean, they're printed out, but there's a lot of handwritten uh, information in their handwritten envelope to them. Um, so they get that in the mail. So they get touched on mail. They get the, you know, obviously the emails, uh, we do call and check in, you know, with clients, especially our A's, our most loyal clients, we're going to check in by phone. We check in text, phone, all that kind of stuff from time to time. And then we do a huge client appreciation party every year, which is, has become a massive hit and kind of clients have come to expect it. It kind of is the thing. And so we do a massive client appreciation party every year. Obviously with COVID, we, we didn't have the opportunity to do that, but we'll get back to it. Uh, so we kind of bring people together. We also, you know, touch them through regular old snail mail, um, calling, texting, and also obviously the digital experience. Uh, but the CRM just makes it so I can't forget it. Yep. Makes sense. And, you know, you really can't replace that just handwritten note, the the phone call, the, the in-person, you know, client appreciation party. Gotta love those classic systems that just have such a great effect on increasing the recognition and memory that, you know, oh, yeah. Right. Like Michael, you know, he's my friend and my MLO. And when other people are then asking about, oh, yeah, hey, I think we're going to buy a house soon. Oh, you got to use Michael, right? Because it's top of mind awareness. So, yep. yeah, it's definitely powerful. So 
I was talking to you a little bit before the show about some of the, the crypto stuff that's going on, and you had a lot to say. So I, I would love <laughs> to uh, just shed light on, on your experience with that. And it seems like a lot of your sphere also kind of interacts with you and, and asks you about that. You know, the, the market goes down a little bit. They're like, Michael, what's going on, right? <laughs> so uh, I would love to just hear your, you know, disclaimer, this is not investing advice, right? Yes. And, 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 and this, that, and the other. But yeah, I, I would love to just shed light on that experience that, that you have in crypto. Yeah. So it was one of those things. I mean, years ago, I remember hearing about Bitcoin and hearing about the different projects and thinking this is kind of like a Ponzi scheme or this is kind of a joke. I didn't understand it. And, but what I did is luckily I had a good friend of mine who, who I consider very successful and who was starting to get into it. And he said, Hey, just check out this guy. The guy uh, that he wanted me to check out was named Robert Breedlove. And anyone in the sphere would know Robert Breedlove. He said, check him out. And when I launched, and Robert's videos are pretty long, like he gets super in depth. But all of a sudden I listened to the first video and it was probably two hours. And then I, and he, but he explains the history of money. So when you explain the history of money and you understand that literally money is whatever we agree it is. And mm -hmm. at one point it was glass beads, you know, in place in Africa, it was glass beads. Uh, you had uh, seashells, you had silver, you had gold, you know, it, it, it's changed over time. And now we have what's called the fiat currency, right? So our money's actually not backed by anything. We, we got off the gold standard officially in 1971, but, but it was one of those things before that we supposedly had a dollar backed by gold. And that was even in question, um, you know, after World War I and II. But it's one of those things where all of a sudden you learn the history of money so much makes sense. And the reason why I love to know the history and to know finances is because it impacts what we're going through now. In terms of the advice I give to my clients, like, hey, where's the market going? What's going on? Why is why are house prices going up like they are? You know, what's going on? Are we going into a bubble? So when you know those underlying factors of, hey, you know, what the heck is, you know, what happened? What caused this? When you know the history, then all of a sudden a lot of other things start making sense. So that's kind of where I got the introduction and the why. But when I listened to Robert, then it all of a sudden just a, a kind of a, a light popped. And I'm like, okay, now I'm, I'm getting this more. And then I did a ton of other research, you know, did a lot of research on my own, uh, listen to other podcasts, listen to other very successful people, uh, doing research on myself, uh, first person too, doing it myself, like learning how to open up a wallet, learning, you know, get exchange, learning to put your, you know, money in cold storage, you know, to transfer your bid or ETH or whatever your, your coins are to cold storage, to, you know, stake it, uh, to look in DeFi projects, all those kind of first person stuff. And then I'm like, okay, I'm getting this. Because if you think about it, I mean, Henry Ford years and years ago talked about a digital money. I mean, he was obviously ahead of his time, but it just makes sense. Everything in this world is going digital. Why win our money? And so it made sense that you would have some type of, of you know, way of commerce uh, that was completely digital. And so, and then when you get into history, money, inflation, taxes, all that kind of stuff, there's a whole different rabbit hole on that. It starts to even make more sense. And then you know, obviously, when you understand what the fiat system means and what that's happening, then you can completely understand, number one, what our role as a loan originator is in the economy, but also why house prices are going where they are and where the market's going. So that's kind of why I got into it. And it just was incredibly interesting to me, um, not only as a, an asset and an investment vehicle, but also just to understand our business and understand the world in a totally different way that explained a lot of issues that I think people have questions about why. Well, if you understand the history of money, it actually answers quite a few of them. So that, to me, it was just my curiosity to be better for me and to my clients. 
Yeah, interesting. And obviously, it's something that you're passionate about, and just in the in the way that you kind of got excited about talking about <laughs> it and the history of money and everything. And uh, you know, for me, I had a different journey. But you know, I'm I'm young, and it was like, oh, crypto. All right, you know, other people getting into it, they're making money. And I I just started using an old investing trick with this new type of investment, which is called dollar cost averaging. So I heard from this crypto multimillionaire and total crypto bull. And he says, all you got to do is buy Bitcoin every week. Hold it. (laughs) Right. And I was like, oh, that's easy enough. Right. And so it's small. It's like 50 bucks a week. And, And maybe I'll increase that over time. But you think about it like 50 bucks a week, no matter what price point it is that week, automatic, just withdrawn from my account, just building up my my crypto portfolio automatically. And I'm hitting all these different price points as the markets are going up and down. But if you have the long-term strategy, imagine in 10 years, if it hits 200,000 or a, a million, right? For, for a coin. Yep. And it's like, oh, I have three coins, <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, it was super interesting strategy there. And then um, I was mentioning before, before the call that I, I also stake. So I thought that was one of the coolest things. It's like a savings account. So simple. Mm-hmm. You, instead of having your, your crypto on this app, you know, uh, I don't want to, say or promote any particular app, but instead of having it in this particular wallet, you could go over to this particular wallet and you literally just move it. You just transfer it over. And for having it in that one, they'll pay you four and a half percent or 6% or 9% per year. And, and it's really interesting because I liken that to a savings account. Like people used to switch banks because people, they're saying 2%, you know, annualized return (laughs) on your savings, the FDIC insured all this. Well, that's fascinating because now with, with these more volatile markets, they can actually make a higher yield. Plus inflation is at unprecedented levels. So that 2% or even that 0.002%, which is what you're really getting from a savings account nowadays, that's yeah. not going to save you from inflation, right? So uh, no. I thought it was a very interesting way to hedge against inflation and yep. uh, buying the crypto anyway, you might as well be earning some interest over that time. And then you can compound it and reinvest it back in, or you can mm-hmm. pull out the interest yourself or whatever. So uh, two simple strategies takes me zero time. And you know that's kind of my involvement, but um, I, I think there's potential in the technology and I'm going to see where it goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it'd be interesting to see when once the technology continues to make sure and to see, you know, what does a Bitcoin mortgage look like? You know, when are you going to because I know there was a wholesaler that came out with pay your mortgage in Bitcoin and it disappeared in like two weeks. I mean, it didn't stay around <laughs> very long. Too volatile right now. For too them, early to work. <laughs> yeah, it too was early to too market. Early. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. But uh, but it's one of those things. That's where the, the world's going. Right. Like it's it's going to go that digital route. I mean, there's already. Central bank digital currencies, CBD. I always get the acronym central bank digital currencies, but don't ask me to say it too fast. It's one of those things that everything is going to go, you know, digitally. It's just, do you want to, do you essentially want to stay in the fiat world, right? Where your money's actually not backed by anything. And true inflation is really around 15%. So that means that number one, right. you get a mortgage right now, you're, you're actually getting paid. You're at negative interest rates. I mean, we're at negative interest rates across the board. So it's one of those things where, you know, if you can, if you understand that, then obviously you can have a different conversation with your clients about, hey, I know you think you want to save and maybe wait, but that doesn't make sense because literally you're getting 15% taken from you every single year and you don't even know it. Um, yeah. And that's where crypto comes in because crypto doesn't have that same inflation rate. I mean, Bitcoin's eventually going to go to darn near zero, right? Uh, you know, as soon as it runs out, uh, they don't create any more coins, but the inflation rate of Bitcoin is incredibly uh, less than our true inflation rate. And even ETH, 
I want to say the new inflation rate because they're they're starting a new ETH 2.0 was going to go down something like four percent a year, something like that. But clearly, a lot less than fifteen percent in terms of inflationary rate. So it's like if you look at that, well, you know, you're going to take four percent from me, or you're going to take fifteen percent for me. But then, to your point, Jeffrey, when you stake it and you're getting seven percent back, well, you're actually earning, you're becoming wealthier as opposed to in a traditional bank where they're taking 15% from you a year in buying power and giving you less than 1% back, right? So yeah. it's one of those things that just financially makes sense. But then again, when you can have those conversations with your clients and inform them, hey, this is why you should do this. It makes sense on this level uh, because you got to protect yourself. Otherwise, any cash in the bank, <laughs> you're just, I mean, you, you might as well just take your money and throw it out the window because that's what's happening. Sure. You touched on a couple of interesting things there. So the first one was about real negative rates. And you mentioned the 15% actual interest or actual inflation rate, rather. Mm-hmm. I heard at a investor conference in January that the inflation formula has changed over the years. And I'm curious if that's what you're referring to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look at the same basket of goods they used, I believe it was in 1982, uh, if you use a CPI index based on 1982 numbers, and how they calculate CPI, our true inflation is over 15%. What they have done is because the Federal Reserve doesn't, there's a lot of reasons for this, but I'll say it's in our increased debt. It behooves the Fed to devalue our money because then the, the old debt they're paying off isn't that big a deal because they've inflated the money so much. So think of this, if you had a million dollars to pay off, but all of a sudden now a million dollars, you've been deflated, you've debased the currency. So you've, you've made it worth less. Think of Zimbabwe having a million dollar, you know, dollar bill or they had a million dollar bill. Um, when you debase the currency enough, all of a sudden it's really easy to pay off that million dollar debt you had because mm. now they're printing so much money. Now a million dollars isn't a big deal. And so they can pay that off easier. So it's a way to keep the Ponzi scheme going essentially um, to deal with our high debt loads that really aren't going anywhere. They're doing it by just debasing the currency. So like the reason why they manipulate CPI is because they don't want see they don't want people to see the true CPI. And this is an example. What they do is before when the price of a car went up, it would go in the CPI. So all of a sudden, okay, hey, I paid thirty thousand dollars for this car. Now I'm paying thirty five. That's an increase, right? That should be in CPI. Well, what they do now is, and there's a term for it. Uh, what they do now is they switch it. So they say, okay, yeah, the car price went up five thousand dollars, but they're also giving you power locks. And they're giving you, you know, higher quality leather. And now you get a CD player instead of a tape deck. So, well, that's kind of part of it. You're getting more for your dollar. So essentially, we're not going to count that or we're not going to count it as much. And it's like, well, no, but my car's still 5,000 more. So they're hiding inflation is even though the price is going up because they include a couple extra things or newer things that they say cost more, they, the formula has changed how they count it. So it's really interesting how the government has, has made that change. But if you look in true prices, uh, it's amazing when you see the true inflation based on the old way of calculating CPI that didn't try to hide as much uh, that we do now. I mean, so that's, yeah. And then we can tell a client, that's why you want to know why house prices are up, you know, almost 20% year over year. Well, I mean, what, we printed 38% of our entire monetary supply of US dollars. We printed 38% of it in the last year and a half. Um, it's like, well, no kidding, prices are going up because we're debasing the currency. So it makes sense. You know, the house, your price hasn't increased. It's just the value of your money has decreased is really what mm-hmm. it is. And so, you know, you can let people know that. Um, and part of that is you sometimes get a client goes, hey, I think I should save and I should wait a year. And it's like, okay, let's have another conversation, a deeper conversation that, hey, okay, so number one, any savings you do, you're losing 15% a year. So realize your money's not going to go as far. 
Two, remember last year, the same house you won this year was $100,000 less. Guess what's going to happen next year? So the money you supposedly save is really not what you think you save. It's being worth less and less 15% per year. The buying power is going down. Your house price is going up because certain assets are you know, resistant against inflation, meaning they'll keep up with inflation or near it. So housing is one of those. So the price of the house goes up. Your value, your dollar actually goes down. Um, and then interest rates, if they continue to go up, and we'll see, you know, there's a, a lot of back and forth on that, but still it gets more expensive and you're not going to be in a better position financially. So it's like buy the darn house now, you know, lock in your, your rent essentially with your 30 year fixed or whatever you do. And then, hey, if rates drop, go ahead and rewrite your loan. But don't think you're going to all of a sudden get a ton more buying power because you saved another 50 grand, because that 50 grand you saved up isn't worth anything, like it's being debased so much. So when, you, when the people who you have that conversation with get that, it's like an eye opener and they go, holy, you know, and then they get super motivated to go buy a house now and not wait because they realize like when they, people start opening their eyes to what's really going on in the economy, it's, it's pretty amazing. The reasons why you would want to buy a house or, you know, invest and not keep a lot of money in cash uh, because of what's going on. So it's just a, a kind of down the rabbit hole, I say, but, but it is true. I mean, it's not a, a tinfoil hat kind of thing. It's just what it, what's happening. And you just, once you know the rules of the game, then you know how to play it. Right. At that investor conference, they talked about how if you're a real estate investor, you love inflation, but it's not consumer price inflation, which is the CPI you're referring to. It's asset price inflation. And yes. as you mentioned, asset price inflation, also known as appreciation on a <laughs> home, has exceeded or met the consumer price inflation over you know the last hundred years, say. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, real estate is a notoriously common investment for, for wealthy individuals. And, you know, I don't know a single millionaire that doesn't have a significant uh, real estate holding in their portfolio. So, you know, that might just be my network, but I don't think there's a, a common <laughs> trend there, right? They know that it's one of the best hedges against inflation. And when you get to that level of, of money that you're managing, you have to look at preservation rather than growth, right? And, and that's really the first concept when you go into investing. It's not like you're chasing yield and you want 30, 40, 50% returns year over year. It's like, okay, how do I beat inflation and keep this nest egg I've already built? Then let's talk about the, the yield and the returns. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting. And the other thing I wanted to talk about in uh, like two, two little comments ago that you, that you mentioned, you said knowing the history is helpful when you then are asked to predict the future, right? And so I'm curious where you think the industry is heading. Um, and in terms of both like macroeconomics, if you had a crystal ball, but also, you know, what are your five, 10 year projections for the real estate industry, which is going under a, a huge overhaul as well? Yeah, no, it absolutely is. But I think long term, and really, if you look at that five, 10 year crystal ball, and even short term, two things I would say is we know just like simple economics, right? Supply and demand. If you look at the demographics, uh, the millennial generation, and I mean, you look at the birth rates that we had, and, and usually a first-time home buyer is about 33, 34 years old is, is the average age. If you look at the, just the birth rates, 33, 34 years ago, and what you see going forward, it is amazing. If you also look at the birth rates, you totally understand why we had the crash in 2008. There so what do you mean by huge, that? There was a huge drop. So, and, and I don't want to get into a political point, but when, 33 or 34 years before like 2008, birth control was legalized. There was a huge mm. drop in pop, just pure population. So you saw the birth rate dip considerably for several years. Well, that lined up perfectly with 2008. And so what happened was we were building for a bigger population than we had. We had a dip in the population. So that's why if you look at any of the charts, 
you'll see that we had a whole lot more building than we had people coming in households forming, essentially. So there's a really imbalance. And that was led to the crash. I mean, yes, because remember, the whole reason why a lot of these crazy loans were created is to create demand because they had all these houses to sell and they were building, but they didn't have the people to sell them to. So what they needed to do is take the normal kind of you have the roughly 65, 35 to 70, 30 in terms of homeowners compared to renters. So what you had to do is you had to incentivize more of those renters to buy that normally wouldn't have qualified. So then they came out with all these crazy loan products to do this. And obviously we know what happened. But if you looked at simply the demographics, you've been like, yeah, there's gonna be a big dip for a couple of years where we don't need that many houses created compared to normal population growth. Well, the opposite is happening now. If you mm -hmm. look at the birth rates, the birth rates are considerably up from generation, what was it, X, I guess it is, uh, right before the millennials. But the millennial generation is considerably higher. And if you look at the birth rates for the next like six, now it's like six years because it's been two years into it, the birth rates continue to go up and they stay up. You don't see a big dip like you did in 2008, 2009, that kind of thing, or you know, looking 33 years before. You don't see the birth rate dip. And what that means is we got a lot of households forming. We also know that right now, you know, we have roughly, we were building, I think there was a, a little over 3 million homes for sale. It was like 3.2 or 3.7 million. It was over 3 million homes for sale in 2007, 2008. Right now, as of February of 2022, we have less than a million homes for sale, yet there's 12 million more households than we had in 2007. So you look at that, you go, okay, cool. We haven't built enough to keep up with normal population demand in the last decade. And now we got this big millennial generation coming to their home buying years, you know, prime home buying years coming out for the next quite some time. And, you know, you look at that and go, we got a really big supply imbalance. And there, there was a graph I saw just the other day. It showed population growth compared to um, exist, uh, home sales or inventory. And it was polar opposite. Population was going up, home existing inventory was going down. I mean, it was very clear that if you just look simple supply demand, simple economics 101, we have an issue. We have a structural right. issue. We don't have enough houses to supply all the, you know, people that are the households that are forming. So with that structural imbalance, you're going to see prices continue to rise. Now, how high they go up? I mean, they can't go up forever necessarily. I mean, they can, but it's got to take some time to get there. But the whole point is, it, does that mean a bubble's coming? No, because we, we <laughs> It would take us, like, we would have to build not only what we need to keep up with population, but then, remember, we're in a deficit of something like 4 million houses. So when you look at all that, we've got a really strong housing market for quite some time. Now, you, people go, well, if rates get out of control, that's going to hamper that, which they're absolutely right. If we got to 6 7% rates, yes, that would have a very negative impact on housing. It would just, you know, obviously slow it down considerably. But that doesn't mean that population is still not growing. So eventually it's still going to come back. But I do think look, looking microeconomically, if you look at every you know, time in history, the higher the debt of a country, the lower the rates go. And that's because debt slows down the velocity of money. And so with our incredible debt with the US and the incredible debt we just put on in the last you know, year and a half, eventually that's going to ke catch up to us. And I know we're seeing inflation right now. But I'm saying generally, and every time it's been done in history, it actually slows money down. The velocity slows down and you see interest rates actually go down. And that's why we've seen interest rates declining for the last, since we basically, we got off the gold standard and, and our debt has, has increased. So, you know, there's some thought process for some of the people that I follow that say, hey, look, we're, we're already going to start heading into a recession end of this year, beginning of next. And we've got a lot of structural issues and the Fed's going to screw it up like they always do. They're going to raise interest rates. They're going to put us into a recession. And our economy is not as strong as people think. When you really look at it, it's not. 
And so you put those two things together, there's a case to be made that we could see the lowest interest rates we've ever seen when this happens. Now, I don't try to predict you know, that it's 100% going to happen, but I'm saying there's a lot of things in place that it could happen. And the Fed's going to need to eventually, they're going to need to keep rates low. They have no choice. That or they, or they debase the currency so quickly, they throw us into hyperinflation. Like it's going to go one of two ways. They're going to have to keep rates super low to be able to pay our debt load, or they're going to have to debase our currency so incredibly fast that it's going to be hyperinflation or at least incredible inflation. And I don't think that's a politically way they're going to go. I would think the easiest political way, which is usually tend to be what they do, is going to be to keep rates low and just keep piling on debt. And so, mm-hmm. and because people won't notice, you know, they won't notice it as bad as hyperinflation. They'll notice that. And so I think politically, that's kind of the way they'll go. Um, and if that happens, we could definitely see rates come down. So I think right now, you know, as an opportunity, as rates are going up, these are just all future clients that, you know, within maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, who knows, maybe it could be sooner, depending on what goes on. You could definitely have an opportunity to, you know, rewrite a lot of people's loans. And then the lower interest rates are going to boost ho- housing yet again in prices. So I-, I just would say the real estate industry is a darn good industry to be in right now with all the changes, you know, technologically it's still a really great industry to be in. And I believe it's going to be strong for quite some time, unless we have some, you know, kind of black swan event that no one can even think of. Uh, But what the data we have right now shows that it's pretty good business to be in for the next quite some time. Yeah. Very insightful. The understanding of finance and the way that it relates to politics and how the fed will manipulate the system. You know, that was definitely a good overview of what, might happen and and kind of the predictions based on supply and demand to your point being so underbuilt you know in, in my experience it's it's more so been in my adult life the story of underbuilt but to your point you know prior to the the recession a major tailwind and the reason why prices dropped 50% in some markets is because there were so many houses available mm-hmm. and and that wasn't only the foreclosures there was already a huge listing inventory and i mean it was a it was a strong buyer's market with incredible loan products to fuel it. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's in addition, and, and also the, uh, the, the big banks just released all the foreclosures to the market as they came. And so it, it helped to flood everything. So mm-hmm. it, it was just overall just this huge bubble popping. And, and that's not something that we're going into in the short term now. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in addition to that, I also have a theory that, the big banks and the government had learned from that foreclosure dumping and how it affected the market. And I think that now they probably have thousands of foreclosures that they're just hanging on to and they're going to start trickling out slowly because they don't want that to happen, right? This massive influx Mm -hmm. of of inventory and how it shifts the market. Um, I think they might have learned and and, uh, hopefully they'll then still get them out to market and keep the cycle going, but um, maybe not just flood it after these like rent moratoriums and these things that are that are coming to an end do officially finally end and uh, either investors have to, to sell them or foreclose on them or whatever happens with a lot of these homes that you know people have been living in them and not paying rent like you got to pay that bill sometime right <laughs> yes. so uh yeah there, there's some interesting things happening but I, I once again i don't think that it'll be this huge flood of inventory on top yeah. of this massive inventory already which then you know drastically drops the the uh, price of the homes so to your point i also think that the interest rate increases that have been happening that have been already tanking the market they it's a, it, i think it's a bit of a bluff uh, they can't really you know just go up to like five, six percent and watch us just, you know, burn the economy down. <laughs> so like yes. they, they there's always that 
political response and and reaction to oh hey now we're going to come in and help out and lower rates and print some more money and oh you get a stimulus check and this and that so yeah they they're they're kind of playing the game they're doing the best they can i guess but um yeah pretty interesting and to your point and to my point housing prices aren't going down anytime soon i have noticed that they've leveled probably because the buying power has been restricted so people that could afford the 1.2 million dollar house in their market mm-hmm. now we're only looking at the 1 millions cuz you know it a 1 to 1.5% increase in interest rate is a huge you know chop off the top of your buying power right so oh yeah yeah it's it's yeah. it's an interesting time that we're in i feel like as well we're kind of in the worst time but also to your point the the best time cuz on one hand as a consumer you could say oh man we're at the end of this 10 year run and prices are really high and interest rates were low so it was okay but now the interest rates gone up and the prices haven't come down yet right so if you look at it that way it's like it's kind of the worst time but if you look at it in in to your point well you're kind of just renting the loan like it, your money sitting in the bank isn't doing anything you might as well get it into real estate and then if it does drop in a year refinance if it drops in 5 mm-hmm. years refinance right like at least your yep. your then asset price is infl- inflating along with the consumer price inflation so it's interesting you can look at it from either angle and mm-hmm. feel like you have a good argument but at the end of the day if you want to be a homeowner and build wealth you just got to jump in you just got to be in yes. the market yeah no no you're absolutely right i mean cuz to your point earlier about all the foreclosure and everything what the big banks learned about was bulk sales so you've got big companies like BlackRock and other uh, big investing hedge funds. They're just buying these houses in bulk. I mean, you even have a, a new home builder that's just building a division to sell uh, as rentals, yeah. right? So like and they never have, they never return to the market. No, and that's why that's even so. All this is contributing to again why the prices you're not going to see a bubble because you have a lot of inventory that's just never even making it to the market. Those foreclosures, things like that, that are just never doing it. Even some of the new homes. And you can basically constrain the new supply coming on and not just, you know, with, with our pandemic issues, obviously supply issues, labor issues, things like that. But you throw in this new kind of thing where now, what does that tell you? If incredibly brilliant people are generally right because they either know it, how the government, you know, they've got their sources, they've got their people, but they are investing their own money into housing, right? They're buying these bulk sales from banks, servicers. They're buying new divisions. Do you think that they would actually buy those homes if they thought the market was about to crash? I mean, that's a question that you... Yeah, no, no, they wouldn't because they're seeing some of the same data I'm seeing. They're seeing the same fundamentals that, hey, this is going to be one of... Like when you tap into how our fiat system works, you got to be in three things. The only way, if you are not exceeding, if you're not meeting inflation, then you're becoming poor every single year. The only way to become wealthy is you have to exceed inflation. And true inflation, I'm not talking about CPI, CPE, anything like that. I'm talking about real inflation. Um, And people can see that. When you buy a car, when you buy a house, when you buy gas, when you buy a milk, it hasn't gone up 5 or 7%. Let's be realistic. You know, we know gas has gone up a lot more than that, cars, et cetera. So their inflation number is, you know, anyway, I don't need to use the words, but it's not realistic. But when you look at the true numbers, okay, so we're talking 15%, you want to be in real estate, you want to be in equities. And I know the equity market is taking a hit right now, but quite frankly, it's on sale. And that's when you buy. It's Warren Buffett's old, you know, famous quote, be greedy when others are fearful, be fearful when others are greedy. This is when you get stuff on sale. I'm looking long-term, but equities, crypto, and real estate are where you want to be. Anything but retail. You don't want retail commercial real estate, but, but anything else, you know, it's one of those things where you need to be in that because anything you're sitting on cash, other than having cash for a rainy day, so you've got a plan, you know, in terms of buy the dip, essentially, um, any other mm-hmm. cash, you're just getting hammered. 
So it's like, you know, if you look at that, yes, real estate is one of the best things. We know it was up over 20% or nearly 20% nationally. Some markets more, some markets less, but it generally kept up or exceeded inflation. Then you're doing well. And we know rents are what rents, apartment lists, rents were up like 18 point something percent year over year, you know, and for investors, that's an amazing thing. I mean, think of how you work the system. You get a 30 year fixed mortgage that has a negative interest rate, right? You even right now, say your rate was 5%. Okay. Inflation's 15%. So you've got a negative 10% interest rate. So they're paying you 10% to take this loan. Then you're getting higher rents and then your rents are going to keep going up every year, Right. And so you have this fixed cost that's appreciating or really, you know, the dollar is worth less, but you got this fixed cost that's appreciating or at least keeping up or exceeding inflation and you're getting the rent increases. It's like, it's a win-win. That is why you have to be in the game. And if you're sitting off and you don't own a home, you know, you rent, you've got nothing in the equity markets, you're not in crypto, you're not in anything, then you're just getting, you're becoming poor every single day. And that's why we have a, a you know, wealth gap. And it's not, it's not what the reason why people think it's caused. It's because if you're not playing the game, the rules of the system, then you're getting hurt. And if you understand the system though, and get in, that's how you build wealth or at least not become poor, you know, worst case. But it's, it's critical for people's livelihoods and for them building their own true wealth and helping their family. They better be in one of those three, if not all three. And right. that's, that's just kind of my thought process to a lot of people is like, hey, look, I know economics and money is not taught in schools and college for the most part. And this is why we have so many people in dire financial straits. It's like, let me help you. Let me see, help you see the world and how it is, figure out the rules of the game, and then let's help you win. It's really what it comes down to. Makes sense. Yeah. And in that sense, you're really becoming their financial literacy coach or their their uh, yes. advi advisor and shepherd through this financial journey. I remember in my early 20s, I had done a lot of personal development to that point, and I had high earning potential. But I realized that if I ever, if I just continue to spend everything that I make, then I'm always going to be broke no matter how much money I make. I can make a million dollars a month and if I'm spending 1.2, I'm still in debt, right? Yep. So it's like, man, how do we uh, escape that rat race of just always trying yep. to keep up with the things that I'm buying? And, yep. and I learned a couple of tactics there that have really served me, and, you know, just immediately siphoning off a percentage of what you're earning into an account, having that account being, you know, long-term brokerage stuff, maxing out your, your Roth while you still can, you, you know, you think that, oh, you know, I can do my Roth until I make 125,000 a year. Like, uh, you know, cool. I'm going to have that for a while. And then all of a sudden you're making 150 and you can't use that product anymore. And it's like, oh man, I wish I would have really <laughs> focused on that while I had the opportunity to do it. Right. And so there's oh, these yeah. things where it helps so much to get in early. And I'm really grateful for investing the time into my financial literacy in my, in my early twenties, like after college, I just, I had to get the books and the audio and, and mm -hmm. manually do it myself. And it is a shame that, you know, they don't teach that in school, but the reason why is because school as we know, it was designed to train employees, English, math, and basic just communication skills so that they could do their job better. That's why it's all structured 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., right? That way, when you get out into the workforce and you work 9 to 5, it, you're still getting up at 7 to get to the office, and it's all just structured the same way, right? And interestingly, you know, prior to higher education, this is kind of more like an entrepreneurial note, but yeah. interestingly, prior to university and higher education, there were 99% 
entrepreneurs and business owners and 1% employees. And mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs had apprentices and, you know, family-owned businesses, the little barbershop on the corner, this and that. Every town, you know, had, had like one, one bar, one barbershop, this and that. And it was a different time, but most people had a business and then they, they then would train their family or train, they'd have an apprentice. So that over the last 150 years or so since higher education has switched to 1% business owners, 99% employees. Isn't that interesting? It's scary. I mean, and that's a, it, I mean, th this goes down a hole in the rabbit hole. Why? But right. I mean, it, it's a control kind of thing. And, you know, and it's simple because always people ask, you know, at least I'll have people ask me is, you know, why don't schools, why don't, don't college, you know, teach true money? And it's like, well, because they don't want you to know. I mean, remember, most of these are government funded and in one way or another. Yeah. And they don't want you to know because truly if people do. If everyone's rich, money, no one's going to work. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah. If everyone's rich, no one's going to work. But also if you knew the history and knew what they're really doing, you're going to be pretty damn, I mean, you know, you're going to be pretty darn upset, mad. Yeah. You're going to be mad about how the system is set up and, um, and run. And you'll see that, you know, again, remember our, our, our dollar is not backed by anything, like literally right. nothing. And it's all kind of a, a scheme. And so people really saw through that and people are starting to, I mean, I, I think that obviously with Bitcoin coming out um, and crypto, if you start going down that rabbit hole and understanding that, obviously it'll, it'll enlighten you in a, in a definite way, but, but it's just a control thing is to keep people kind of just focused on one thing and not focused what actually is happening to them. And it's unfortunate, right. but it's also a heck of a, like, I look at it like such an opportunity because if we're, you know, in the business that I'm in and kind of how we're evolutionizing the mortgage process is if I can give and help my clients see the world in a different light, help them know the rules of the game and help them win and put their themselves and their family in a better position, then I brought real value into their lives. And that's something that an online lender can't do. Someone working in a big bank that doesn't care. Like they're not doing those things to clients, but then I am and I'm helping changing people's lives, but also they, and the ones who understand that and want that and see that, then all of a sudden you've got an amazing client that's like the biggest sales machine ever because they realize what you've done for them. And then they want other people to be exposed to that too. And it just works on itself. And so it's, it's one of those things that it makes me feel great because I love being able to help people. And then it benefits in immense ways because you're able to change people's lives that then benefits my business and, and me. But it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's just, um, it actually gives you purpose. And that's a really cool thing that I, that I think we have an opportunity to do if you do it right in this business. Love that. Very why-centered uh, and I can tell that you, you're really passionate about helping others to understand this whole system that you've spent, you know, the better part of, of a, a, coming up on like 15 It'll years, like 15, right? 15, 16 years soon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really, yep. really just diving in and understanding, helping people every day. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Hey, is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier? No, I think Jeffrey, you, you did great covering. I think we went off on a tangent on the Bitcoin and, and the monetary system, which is awesome because I think it plays into our business. Um, but the only other thing I would say is, you know, if anyone was watching this and yes, take away from, you know, maybe do some research on how the monetary system works, if you're interested for yourself. Um, but then the other thing is back to like kind of basics, business basics, I would think, you know, how I've grown my business is I haven't done a ton of advertising in terms like radio, TV, you know, newspapers, old school kind of ways that people do. What I've done is very old school in terms of getting to know people, adding a ton of value to their business and, and to their lives. And then when I'm able to do that, it obviously benefits me, but I don't do it because of that. I do it because of my passion to help people and to put people in a better position. And then it helps with everything else. And I think if we're focused on doing the right thing, getting to be an actual, and like I said, when I said evolutionizing the business, I meant that. 
is how I've grown my business and how we do our business and how I'm training now that I'm recruiting LOs, you know, to work with us um, is training them the right way to do business and to add true value because this business, you know, like real estate is going to, is going in two ways. You're either going to be, have to be the cheapest and the lowest cost, but you provide the least value or you, you're going to be a higher cost, but you're going to provide a ton of value. And there's almost the in-between is disappearing. And so that's why I want to teach people that if you want to be a low price leader, you don't need to be around us. You can go, you know, work for some online lender or bank. But if you actually want to make a difference in this world, earn a great living and help people, there is another way. Not being the low cost leader it doesn't mean you're ripping people off. It just means you're not, you're not, you're actually giving them value and you're getting paid for your value. You're actually worth mm. it. And that's what I'm trying to, to help, you know, our business. That's what I'm doing in our business. And that's what I'm doing with, as I start to build a region and I start to build a branch. Uh, even bigger within my group is that I want to teach people to actually add value to people's lives because at the end of the day, that makes you feel amazing. Um, it helps you and your family and you're helping and changing the world for better. And so if you can do that and, you know, again, not the low price leader that doesn't offer any value, well, you know, decide who you want to be. And there is another alternative. You don't always have to be the low price leader to be successful. Amen to that. So how can listeners contact you? Yeah. So either, uh, like I said, they can check out our website at regenteam.com. All of my contact information is in there or shoot me an email. It's really easy. It's just michael at regenteam.com. And that's R-E-G-A-N. Really easy to find me if you, if you look us up. Awesome. Michael Regan, everyone. I really appreciated having the conversation with you and getting an MLO's perspective on crypto, the financial system. I, I liked how we went off on that tangent and really talked about the larger discussion which isn't talked about a lot <laughs> and, and, and how it ties back and relates to, you know, what a consumer could do today. And also, I mean, for any real estate agents listening to this, this is all just ammunition for those buyers that are on the fence. You know, this gives you the conversation topics to have to get them to make that decision and create some urgency around finishing up those taxes and getting that stuff to their lender and getting that loan. Cause you know, that money sitting in the bank or under a mattress isn't doing anything for them. So I really appreciate where the conversation went and, and you know, thank you so much for taking the time today, Michael. No, I appreciate it, Jeffrey. It was a pleasure and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.